Welcome all. Today I am speaking with Richard Remily. He is a PhD student at uh, MMU. His MA was in social research and his PhD is looking into why people go to university, how different kinds of motivation influence the experience of being a student. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. It's a fascinating project. So uh, yeah, on with the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Richard. How are you doing today? Hi, Anton. I'm very well, thank you. And, and thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. No problem at all. No problem at all. It was, it was uh, easy from my point of view because it was, it was genuinely a, a fascinating PhD. It, 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 it's, it's one of those weird things where, you, where you're reading about someone else's PhD and kind of wishing, hmm, maybe I picked the wrong PhD. <laughs> maybe, 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 maybe I can jump ship and do some of theirs. But I think obviously when you spend so much time doing one thing, all the all the other PhDs naturally start to look a lot better than you. <laughs> yeah, well, they're all really interesting, and um, I'm I'm sure yours is is equally interesting too. But I'm glad to hear actually though that you you found it interesting, and um, because I, I feel like that those those kind of things are always encouraging to hear that someone else is actually interested. For sure, I I, I think um, there's there's all sorts of sort of sort of um, well not only kind of impl- impl- implications which we'll get onto, but in terms of you know, like the, like the, this, I suppose the philosophical notions that speak to the human condition as well, which I think are quite interesting. We can get into as well, which um, yeah. somebody did, who's done, done philosophy previously. Um, I, they, they kind of popped out to me. I was like, Oh, that's, that's, that kind of says yeah. a lot really about, you know, what, what learning and motivation, these are yeah. things that, that, that relate to all of us. So yeah, it yeah, is, it is important. So, um, yeah, so, so let's start with the first one, which is always my favorite one because, it, it always starts off kind of like oh it, you know it was like, like a practical career decision but then usually there's there, there's a really nice personal element um to why people would ever embark on such a ridiculous journey that is a phd so why why are you here doing this why do why did you decide to put yourself through this trauma <laughs> now there is a big question um so from i didn't know what a phd was when i started university and when i was in the second year of my undergraduate degree i was planning to do a dissertation project and um, at this point I decided that I was interested in, in doing a master's course mm-hmm. um, but at this point my my um, undergraduate dissertation supervisor Tom Brock who became my PhD supervisor he basically said to me what are you thinking of doing when you finish your your undergraduate degree um, and he said that he felt like I should consider um, doing a PhD and more specifically consider developing my undergraduate dissertation project into a PhD. Um, so that was the first thing that sort of um, got me considering doing a PhD. And then then it was from that, that point that I looked into it a bit more closely and I, I felt like um, this doing a PhD would be a great opportunity to, to continue my own intellectual development. Um, I was interested in, in the the project that I was going to do for my undergraduate dissertation and doing a PhD will potentially be a way of, of furthering that and a way of hopefully making it have, have more impact. Um, and I, f- I felt like I'd, I'd be suited to the challenge of a PhD and I'm, I'm still actually uh, deciding whether I was Not right sure about, or not. Yeah. about that. But <laughs> I, felt, I, I liked, um, I, I was, I felt like I was quite good at um, self-management and, um, and, and being motivated. Um, so I thought I'd be quite well suited to a PhD. Um, and then also that I suppose the other main reason was that I, I was considering going into academia by this point. And, and, and that's 
that that became the plan it still is the plan um and so if you do a phd it's it's one of going into academia is um i'm sure many of your listeners will know but for those that don't doing a phd is is one sure way to um increase your, increase your chances of, of getting an academic an academic job in the future so that was that was the other reason and sort of i suppose the more strategic career related reason mm. although although from my previous conversations i know i know that you uh well you probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have embarked on this like unless there was like like a practical kind of purpose to it as well right like I, I like I know I know for you it has to be kind of like a useful thing, not some sort of lofty esoteric kind of like you know hmm, what what is you know, what is a chair like like for you it was it was it was something applied I assume. Yeah, that's right. Definitely, it was, um, and that goes back to my my point about developing my dissertation. The re- the reason I was doing that dissertation in the first place is because I was interested in. Um, why students come to university and ultimately how we can improve student engagement and student experiences and um yeah back to your point that i felt like that was a practical project i wanted it to have practical implications so yeah one of the the motivations for doing a phd was definitely so i could try and contribute to some sort of practical difference yeah yeah i mean i I think that's that's a beautiful reason to do it and um it flows quite 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 nicely into describing what your PhD actually is, Richard. So, um, yeah, well, I nearly got onto it there, didn't I? Yeah, you did. You did. I could. I could, I could feel you going for it. So I'm just going to enable you and uh, you know, please, please do tell us. But obviously, bear in mind that we're not all experts in this. So myself and yeah. Peter, so you might have to break it down a little bit for me. But what is your what, what is your PhD in a nutshell? Um, so in a nutshell, I'd say my PhD is about um, how the motivations and decision-making processes of university students influence their experiences of university. So that's the, in a nutshell bit, uh, shall I elaborate a bit? Yeah, yeah, although that was an impressive nutshell. I'm like, I, 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 like obviously for, for those who, who who aren't doing doing a PhD, like the idea of like <laughs> of compressing your, your PhD into you know, just a, a minute or even a sentence is, is not only difficult, but quite, quite stressful. <laughs> So yeah. I'm not sure, not sure it's quite quite a challenge for a PhD student, but you did well there. That was quite impressive. Oh, thank you. I think yeah. it's it's a good challenge. So I'm glad to hear that I've um I've I've done okay there. Yeah, but yeah, feel 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 free to to to, to expand a bit on you. Yeah. So um so by motivations, I basically mean why do students come to university? And um what, what I'm interested here is is as I'm sure we can all imagine, students have um, different reasons for coming to university um, and what I'm interested in is, is whether different kinds of motivation for being at university um, tend to lead students down certain pathways in terms of the way they experience it so for example if a student is primarily motivated by things like getting a better job or maybe they're motivated to go to university because their friends were doing it or or people made them feel like they should do it. Um, are, are those students uh, more likely to enjoy it, or maybe are they are they less likely to, to enjoy it? Um, compare those kind of motivations with motivations such as students who who are there because they love to learn, or they are passionate about their subject, or um, maybe because they they just want to 
um, they just want the opportunity to to meet new people and and to sort of grow as a person. Um, obviously, there's lots of different motivations here, but what I'm trying to do, or, or one part of my research, is is to, is trying to sort of categorise different kinds of motivations, um, and and to see how these different forms of motivation uh, relate to to student experiences. And so that's sort of um, a bit more of a summary of of the motivation side of things and then I also mentioned decision making processes um, and now I'm, I'm talking about basically how how students tend to make decisions so do if a student is is more um, independent in their decision making is is that good for them as students so for example there might be some students who tend to, to do what their friends do or they tend to do what they, their parents are telling them they think they should do or maybe it's a teacher that has advised them to go to university and to study this um, and I'm interested in different the, the processes basically in, in which through which students make choices and, and through which they sort of navigate their way through the, the student journey and again I'm looking at, at different if you, if just before I was talking about motivations, on one hand, I'm looking at different kinds of motivation. Um, and then on the other hand, I'm, I'm looking at different kinds of, of decision-making process or, or the technical term here would be different forms of reflexivity. Um, but the, the simple way of talking about reflexivity in the sense that I'm using it is to just call it um, a decision-making process or, or decision-making processes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that is the sort of underlying mechanisms of 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 motivation. Like, what's what's what what's driving these these students to like presumably succeed or in some yeah. cases fail? Um. Well, yeah. What what's going on there? So you um you uh, talk about which a uh, term that that I, I thought was 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 quite a, quite a cool term actually. Like you seem to be talking about it in respect to human flourishing, right? Which obviously yeah. like which I felt kind of went like far beyond students in general right it's quite a it's quite a lofty term isn't it uh human flourishing so yeah oh, uh, yeah so I, I thought it might be quite useful if you maybe could talk a little bit about um well yeah you, you know what 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 do you mean by like human flourishing how did you kind of flash out you know sort of a you know your you know your kind of version of of, of, of what this meant in terms of motivation and education and mm. uh, how did that work out because it's quite an interesting one yeah well it's a um potentially a very vague and fuzzy term and um, the reason I came to sort of start thinking about flourishing was basically because as I was doing my as I was reading literature related to my PhD topic I felt like that ultimately flourishing was what all the different studies and all the different um, people who are writing those studies were interested in so whether people were talking there's lots of people lots of academic research that is concerned about for example the impact of tuition fees on students um, so there's lots of people arguing that tuition fees have, have, have made it so that students are basically just consumers of education and, and people are concerned that this makes students very passive um, on the other hand you've got studies that are concerned about um, how students' backgrounds influence the way they experience education. So, for example, if you're a very working class student and you go to any university, but particularly uh, 
an elite university. Um, research shows that your experiences are likely to be more challenging and, and difficult. And um, these are just sort of two examples of, 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 of the kind of studies that I, I, I was reading. And, and I felt like, well, ultimately, the, what, what is it? Why, why do these things matter? Why does it matter if a student faces additional challenges because of their background? Why does it matter if students are becoming more passive because of um, tuition fees? And, and my sort of conclusion was that ultimately these studies are interested in factors that enable or, or get in the way of usually um, flourishing. Um, that in other, in other words, the, the, the studies that I was reading, they're, they're ultimately concerned that um, the or their concerns have emerged because that the, 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 the object of their criticism, if you like, or the, mm. the object of their concern, they're essentially saying it's it's a barrier to flourishing. If if that was out of the way, that maybe students would be closer to flourishing. Um, and so that's when I started thinking about flourishing um, and and then thinking about how to define it, um, which we could get into. Can I can I just quickly ask like, before you carry on in terms of like those like studies that you were talking about like like when like, when they were talking about you know like flourishing did they mean essentially like test scores like academic success is that what they were kind of interested in as opposed to the I suppose the softer yeah that's stuff. a good question actually some of them are, are interested in that kind of thing but a lot mm. a lot of the a lot of them were more talking more about um, experience and and how that was how these factors. Were, were sort of leading students to have um, a, a suboptimal experience. Let's say that the, oh, the point okay. is basically that these students aren't having the the best the experience the, the best the 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 experiences of these students isn't as mm. good as it could be. Basically, and I think it's definitely the case that they they might argue that um, students' academic outcomes, if you're talking about things in terms of, of grades and um, things like that, that I think they'd also agree that these conditions are are, are going to lead to the, the more academic outcomes being suboptimal too but generally in, in the stuff I've been reading it's, it's, it's more about experience and how, um, how these factors are actually influencing students experiences of education. Okay okay and, and, and that's what you've sort of sort of you know taken from in terms of your 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 project then you're you're, you're looking more towards the experiential like component of their, of their time. yeah that's right yeah that's right and um and the assumption there is that the as a rule of thumb the the better student experiences are the more that students are enjoying the experience of being a student then the more likely they are to do well across the board um well and that and that includes their grades and their attendance um, so yeah, I feel, I feel like um, as, as as I said, as a rule of thumb, I think student ex the, the better student experiences are, um, then the, the more likely students are to to fulfil their potential across the board. That's the way I'd put it. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I yeah, I think I think most people would kind of uh, chime with that to be honest, because I because like when I originally read that, I was slightly concerned that we were only going to be talking about you know like you sort of like you know like exam scores as opposed to yeah the, the much richer picture of of a school experience which is what generally people re remember anyway when they're talking about uh, yeah education right so uh, I, yeah I right there and that, but this is what makes it um 
well, I suppose this is why it has a tendency, this project to be more philosophical than you might have expected is because uh, experience is, is, is a lot harder to conceptualise and to try and um, research than something mm. like grades are. It's very easy to quantify grades and to, to really get a grip on that, whereas experience, you end up in um, much more your sort of your mind becomes much more philosophical and, and that's why I've sort of ended up looking into this concept of flourishing and, and seeing how that had been had been defined. No, it's a good direction. I'm not there's no complaints from me. I thought I thought it was, I thought it was a far more interesting direction to go in. Yeah. Um yeah because it obviously speaks speaks much more broadly to the to the human condition. Um so what so the I suppose you know now that you kind of like you've kind of coached you know, um, human flourishing in terms of how you sort of understand it in your project. The so the, I suppose the 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 model for maybe for better choice of word like that, that you're using to understand like human flourishing is self determination theory, right? That's um, right. So yeah. Maybe maybe you could talk a bit about that because obviously that, that that's probably quite new to a lot of people. Yeah. So um, I think if we all thought to ourselves, what would it mean for me to flourish? Then there's going to have to be lots of things going on um for a start we we have physiological needs so we have to we have to eat a certain amount we have to sleep a certain amount we have to drink a certain amount um you know and without those those needs being met we're not going to be flourishing no matter what else is going on and self-determination theory um i'd say that i'm using that really to sort of look at specific aspects of flourishing um so and more specifically psychological aspects of flourishing so self-determination theory um they talk about psychological needs which are distinct from our physiological needs so um as i've just mentioned now physiological needs can be thought of as, as things such as our need for food or water or, or fresh air um, Whereas um, psychological needs, self-determination theory argue basically that we have psychological needs that are similar to our physiological needs in the sense that if they are not, um, if if they're not satisfied to a certain extent or they're not supported to a certain extent, then then we can't flourish. Um, So we, we might be able to survive without them or we might be able to survive for a certain amount of time without them. Um, but the idea is that um, it's sort of if, if they're not sufficiently supported or sufficiently satisfied, then uh, our well-being is going to be at least suboptimal. Um, so yeah, self-determination freedom. The reason I sort of I, I, that's where that it sort of links to my concept of my idea of flourishing because I'm sort of using self-determination theory as um, to sort of try and conceptualise psychological aspects of flourishing, um, which are not the full host of things that are going to be needed for someone to flourish, but they're, they're sort of aspects of flourishing, if you like. I mean, to, to be honest, it kind of chimed a lot a lot with me. Just, well, I'm not sure if I had mentioned it before, but um, before I, I did a PhD, I, I, I worked in schools uh, across Manchester so at different levels, uh, like primaries, you know, secondary. Um, I worked a lot with... Uh, you know, like like uh, pupil referral units, and um, I suppose my 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 job was to try and educate you know the, the students that were the most challenging to educate. Um, yeah. 
and that, yeah, and it, and it, and it really kind of kind of aligned really with 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 what you were you were you were talking about in terms of, you know, um, well, yeah, both both the, the just just the most basic you know needs, kind of like you know, sort of building on kind of you know Maslow's hierarchy's needs, and and then and then the the more psych- psychological aspects, and obviously because a lot of these kids were from quite uh, you know challenging you know you know sort of like the deprived backgrounds, I I definitely noticed that they they were. They were, yeah, they were, they, you know, I mean, things like, you know, even the, you know, like, I'm not sure if you mentioned it like specifically, but on the, the psychological aspect, something like safety, you know, yeah. like, for example, like, like to not have a sense of, or, or, of your own safety in terms of when, of mm. when, when you go home to, to, you know, to be able to, to be comfortable, you know, enough to relax, enough to do your homework, you know, like, 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 for example. And, and if, if they didn't have that, it, it, it seemed like from, you know, as a educator, it seemed like that was a barrier to their success and as you say they're flourishing um, yeah i would say so yeah my very limited experience it definitely seemed to chime with what, with what you were, what you were kind of saying there in terms of yeah missing certain key checkpoints almost yeah yeah and um and i suppose the point is really that you can have students who who are sat in lectures who to, to put it really simply that they they can can have their physiological needs fully met so that they're fed and watered and yeah, yeah, comfortable yeah. um but they might still really not enjoy the lecture they might feel um frustrated by it they might feel like they, they don't want to be there at all um whereas you might have other students who have got their physiological needs equally as well supported who love it and and i'm sort of um using self-determination theory as a, as a way to make sense of of those differences so why can you have students who are um sort of you know to put it really simplistically let's say hypothetically you've got two students in the room and they're, they're both fed and watered they've, they've had the physiological needs met but uh they're not they're not enjoying this thing psychologically they're not feeling optimal sat in this lecture psychologically mm. um and so that's where i saw that's that's one of that's the main reason I'm using self-determination for is to start to try and make sense of, of, of those differences, which I would argue are, are, are psychological. Yeah. 100%. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if, if it, if it talks about it, but you know, like I, I would work with, you know, obviously students from a lot of different backgrounds and in terms of, um, you know, I suppose like finding, um, you know, finding that source of, of, of motivation, it was, a, it was so much more difficult for those students from, you know, obviously challenging backgrounds to, to find it. Um, and I'm not sure whether, you know, there's a difference there between, you know, the you know, internal and external kind of sources yeah. of motivation. Maybe it breaks yeah. down differently with different classes. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but there was definitely a difference there that um, I couldn't really understand. So, yeah. And I think that makes sense. And um, from a self-determination theory perspective, you, we need to feel, um, you sort of touched upon it there, intrinsically motivated. Mm. Um, so that's, one of the the types of motivation that is is conceptualized self-determination theory is intrinsic motivation where we feel like we want to do something um wholeheartedly for the for the enjoyment of the activity and from a self-determination theory perspective we need that intrinsic motivation before our psychological needs can be um optimally supported so what because it it links perfectly to to, to the next question as to what is the you know like the like the the main factor here that kind of like makes or breaks whether a student is 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 motivated to learn like, like if you you know if say say you were given a job tomorrow to fix the education system no pressure uh, and you went in there and you're like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna improve the motivation of students you know what's what do you think is one of the most important things? 
uh, to improve the motivation of students. So I think, um, well, again, from a self-determination theory perspective, um, the, the assumption would be that the more you support someone's basic psychological needs, and in self-determination theory, that they identify three basic psychological needs, which now that they sort of accept that they're, they're likely to be more, but these they've, they've identified three basic psychological needs, which um, they've been able to test cross-culturally to sort of see whether other, other people in different cultures seem to have these needs. Mm. And, and those three needs are the need for autonomy, the need for, no, the need for competence, and the need for relatedness. Okay. Um, now, back to your question, from a self-determination theory perspective, the assumption would be that... Um, Students will be more optimally, more optimally motivated the more their basic psychological needs are supported. So if we use an example of a, a lecture, um, the more that that lecture and the, and the lecturer and the materials within it, the more, more those things support the student's basic psychological needs, the more motivated the student is likely to feel. That would be the... Um, the assumption so yeah with the magic wand it's a case of well how can you make wave that magic wand in such a way that students that the, the basic psychological needs of students are more supported um and i uh that in principle would would imp would improve their motivations yeah it's a, it's a difficult one isn't it because i suppose mm. you'd, you'd have to because uh, I, I don't know how i suppose universal that would be because that um mm. You know, uh, I mean, I don't like. I, I want to use the example of like autonomy, which I yeah. completely agree is like central. Um, you know, I suppose in like an hour, uh, you know, education system. But um, I, I I've spent you know sort of quite a lot of time teaching uh, like students in in different cultures. You know, I you know I I, I used to teach Chinese students, and you know they have a, a very different approach to kind of learning and you know you know you know things you know things like that yeah. kind of like critical thinking you know of of that mm. in individualistic autonomous kind of like mindset um, yeah you know yeah you, you you don't seem to find that in the same way there's like a different different kind of of i don't know motivational or, or yeah motivational. i don't i don't know i don't know if i'm making sense at all but um yeah there's something in, 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 there's a, maybe a difference there that's worth exploring anyway yeah, I think it's um, well from the self-determination theory perspective. It would be the the idea is that it's the needs that are universal, but the, mm. the ways in which they can be supported for each person are different. So uh, we might go to a lecture together tomorrow, and and that might um, you might really do it for me. It, it might make me feel motivated, inspired. Where it might not for you, um, and that would have to do with um well at least in part our previous experiences and um how that has sort of influenced our minds and influenced essentially the way we're, we're experiencing that same activity of going to the same lecture isn't it it's it's interesting how we you know we could both go but we, we could both go to the same you know same same lecture exact same materials and just com, com, you know ex experience something com, completely differently um, yeah in yeah in in such a large way it really, it really gives you a sense of the of the difficulty and uh, that, that teachers must face in terms of creating content that checks so many of these as you say these like basic psych psychological needs yeah uh, which which in some ways aren't, aren't basic at all really <laughs> well no that's right yeah um yeah no it's, no, it's, it's a fascinating i'm 
I'd also like to ask as well, um, just 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 before I forget, how how are you how are you intending to, to sort of fight to find this out? Are you doing a kind of like a sort of like a, a longitudinal thing over over time with this, or what's your what, what's your what's your plan? Well, uh, there were many plans at the beginning, um, yeah. and I Co- think in, COVID in, in, happened. Yeah. yeah, well, COVID happened, but I think inevitably, when once you actually get into your PhD, you have to you have to trim all those plans down because there's not quite as much um, time yes. to do things as you felt like there would have been. But um, in short, I, I've basically I've done a I've designed a survey. So the survey tries to tap into different kinds of motivation and different kinds of uh, reflexivity or, or different kinds of decision-making process. Ooh, okay. Um, you also have to tell us about ref- reflectivity as well. I'm not sure about that yet. Yeah. yeah. Continue. Um, <laughs> and well, basically there's the survey I designed. Um, that's, that's what it's trying to tap into. So it asks students um, questions about why they come to university. Um, and it asks questions, students questions about how they tend to, make decisions so what, what do they tend to do when they're faced with an important decision um so i was originally hoping to, to design that survey and then have students complete it early on in the project like maybe at the end of the first year or at least in the, the second year so that i could then test it to see whether it's measuring what it's supposed to be measuring um and then put it out again as it turned out, um, the pandemic struck and I tried to get students to complete the survey online, but it was not a great success. So I was ending up, I ended up having to sort of do the data collection in my, at the beginning of my third year. So that was a year longer than planned and um, basically meant that I, I'm not going to be able to do as much data collection as I'd originally planned. And that leaves me in a place where basically now that the project to a large extent is about really testing out this theory of whether we can measure it or, or I like to use the word indicate can we can we indicate different for different levels of motivation among students and um, and different kinds of reflexivity so yeah it's, it's it's in many ways now become a quantitative project because originally the idea was that interviews will play um, a big role in the project and, and they would enable me to, to basically talk to students about, well, to, to talk to students in a way that would enable me to contextualise how, why they've responded the way they have in the survey. So I'd ask them about their, their previous experiences and what they feel has influenced their choices to come to university. And um, yeah, so the interviews would have been, enabled me to go into much more depth, but that that's not going to be able to play the role that I'd intended because of basically the pandemic putting things back so long. I mean, yeah, we all, we all, we all had to adapt, um, obviously when, when, mm. when, when COVID hit, I think, I think you've done amazingly well under the, under the circumstances. Um, and obviously you've got that, that wealth of, of uh, literature there, which was to be honest, it's, it's so kind of philosophical anyway, it would be quite difficult to, I think, study in a conventional way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, well, well, you've, you've, you've touched on a bit there and, um, it, 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 when I was reading your, your, you know, your post, it sounded interesting, but I didn't, I didn't quite get it. So you like, you talk about reflection, you know, well, well reef, reef, reflectivity quite a lot. And it's something that's mentioned in, in sociology also quite a lot. Yeah. Um, so it's like specifically in your context, like what do you, what do you mean by that? And, and how does it, how does it relate to obviously motivation yeah. more, more generally? Yeah. 
Right. So yeah, the, the, the term I'm, I'm using is reflexivity with a with an X. Um, and um, the, the way I'm using that term um, derives from Margaret Archer, who's a sociologist. And uh, my working definition is that reflexivity is our ability to consider our options before acting. Um, mm, okay. So if you think about, if you really think about it, we're doing it a lot of the time. You might be thinking, what am I going to have for, for lunch? And, you, and in your head, you're considering your options um, before hopefully figuring out, in this case, it's usually quite straightforward, but, um, you, you know, if you're thinking about what to have your lunch, but the, the idea is that basically reflexivity is, is this ability of ours to basically think about things before acting. And so you, you could argue that reflexivity is what enables us to um, to act with intention um, without trying to get too philosophical again. Um, but yeah, that, that's basically what I mean by reflexivity and, um, and to sort of get into things a little bit more. I'm looking at different, the idea here and, and Margaret Archer's um, argument is that reflexivity is, is not, um, it's not just a single process it, and um, there, there are different modes of reflexivity. So for example, sometimes, you know, if you're trying to make a decision, you let's say you're thinking about what to have for lunch, we can generally figure that out for ourselves. Um, and that's quite an autonomous form of reflexivity. Whereas for other decisions, you might need to communicate, you might need to speak to someone else. So you might ask mm -hmm. a close friend, what, what do you think? Uh, what, what do you think I should do? And and in those situations, when we're using that form of reflexivity, um, someone else will not necessarily make the decision for us, but it's the case that we, we might not be able to make a decision without consulting someone else. Um, and sometimes we, we there's, well, it's what we, I, I would call fractured reflexivity, where we, um, the more we think about things, the more it, it gives us a headache and the oh. more it stresses us out. And, and that can lead us not to make a decision and to sort of be more passive. That is, that is my only source of reflexivity. I think I I, I, I occupy that one exclusively. <laughs> Sorry, continue. <laughs> yeah, well, and what I'm, that's you get into the point of, of what um, a large part of my research is about. There is what what modes of reflex reflexivity are students tending to use most often. Um, that that's what I'm interested in. So the idea is that we use each mode of reflexivity um, probably every day, but um, the idea is that people tend to use a specific mode um, most often, or, or at least they do in, in certain contexts. And, and so my research is interested in what kinds of reflexivity are students tending to use um, most often while, whilst they're at university. And, and this can change, but the idea is that the survey gives you an indication of of a student's reflexivity tendencies at, at that moment in time. Right, and I suppose it might also give you a sense of potentially which 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 form of reflex reflexivity is better in certain circumstances. Right, ideally. Yeah, that that's right. That's the ideal is that we could um, use this um, information to sort of try and look at relationships between different modes of reflexivity and um, and then student outcomes mm -hmm. if you want to define that i mean i'm looking at it more in terms of experiences but you could look at it in terms of grades or attendance 
it's um yeah again it's another hot, i'm sorry to say another philip you know another philosophical yeah. term because yeah you know i mean like like for me as well you know you, you know as a, as a student going through the education system i i definitely didn't learn to you know i you know i think the one that you mentioned there like, re, like reflecting in a more like, like a collaborative kind of way yeah you know, i didn't learn to do that until 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 much later on in my educational really? journey um, and i think that that's probably true of a lot of students from Mm. from you know from 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 working working class backgrounds um because obviously because that's because that, that's that's generally something you can have almost learn to do at, at uni um and to, a, and to a lesser extent college so yeah so i'd be really interested to see how that kind of breaks down based on um you know their you know their their kind of backgrounds and details as well yeah definitely it'd be, be very interesting i think it's also likely to be the opposite for many students where they've mm. come to university and they've they've been used to just figuring things out with their parents for example so it's like I know some people that their parents have played a, a very significant role in their choice to come to university and, and which university to go to and what to mm -hmm. study. Um, and so, yeah, that that's sort of um, looking at fit. I suppose there's the point now is that some, some students might well be the opposite to you in that sense that they've, they've um, maybe when they've come to university, they've had to go the other way and be more autonomous in the way they make decisions. Ooh exciting i want to yeah I've, I've, i have no idea but like it, it might kind of be the case where you sort of like discover a series of i don't know like uh like definable routes through education you mm. know that, that sort of like that that you can recognize like the set sort of um you know a couple of different maybe styles reflective styles that kind of like yeah emerge. so that'll be really interesting to to yeah to find out mm. yeah and it's it'd be interesting but the, ch the challenge is trying to sort of to tap into these things um via a survey um, because obviously a survey is one way that you can look at things at scale. Obviously, mm -hmm. we could we can explore these things via interviews, which to some extent I have done. And um, but what I'm interested in really is, is trying to develop a survey that universities could use, where they can just get a, a, an indication of of what forms of reflexivity students are, are tending to use. Well, that's what? the that's the challenge yeah 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 I'm, I'm, I'm sorry i can't i can't help you with that but um i'm sure you'll figure it out and it the findings will be fascinating regardless um am, am i also right in uh well because I, I think you mentioned that as part of your your phd you also went to parliament that's or, right for, yeah for like a three-month placement so yeah i'd be interested to know you know what what pearls of wisdom you uh, learned from the the powers that be as it were yeah, so um, so I went on a three month internship at Parliament, and um, it was it was amazing three months. Um, so I, I was I think it's important just for for listeners that might not be aware, because I certainly wouldn't have been if I was um, listening to a podcast about a year ago. I, I didn't even know that Parliament and government are not the same thing. So the government runs the country, put simply, and Parliament mm. scrutinises the work of the government and it holds the government to account. Um, so I was working for Parliament, so my job was basically to help parliamentarians, um, members of Parliament, to help them scrutinise the work of government. Um, and I, I was working on for the Education Committee, which basically scrutinises um, the government's work on education. It, it looks into um, issues relating to education and it, it probably publishes reports and it makes recommendation, recommendations to the government, um, which, which they don't have to implement, but they have to respond to. So uh, select committees, one of which I was working for, um, they are one of the primary ways that Parliament scrutinises the government's work. 
Um, so as part of my work, my, my main role was writing briefings for members of parliament on the education committee um, every week, near enough, they have, they have a meeting. Um, so I, I was using my research skills. I was, my job was basically to, let's say that the select committee this week is looking into mental health in schools and perhaps how that's been affected by the pandemic. My job will be to find the latest information we can get on that um, and prepare a briefing for the members of parliament on, on the committee so that when they speak to experts, which they do in their meetings each week, they know what sort of, what, what's the latest um, information, what, what sort of questions should we be asking. Um, and yeah, so that, that was sort of the, the primary part of my work, but the internship was so much more than that because I had a pass for the Houses of Parliament, so I was able to go and have lunch in there, sort of go and hang out in there and uh, go and watch debates. I went to watch Prime Minister's questions. Um, so yeah, I, I learned so much more about our democracy and the way it works. Um, and it, it gave me, although some people might not believe this, given all the headlines that we've seen in the news at the <laughs> minute, but it gave me a, a much more positive view of our democracy because I saw that it's not just the prime minister and a few people that are sat there um, sort of doing whatever they want. There's, there's lots of people who work both for the government and for parliament um, and there's lots of there's lots of things that i think just you don't you don't see in the news so much so we're used to looking at the news and when we see what's going on in parliament it's usually prime minister's questions and they're all shouting at one another in the chamber and um it's more like the theater but that's just a small part of what goes on and um my internship gave me a, an opportunity to see a lot more of um well, how, how the government operates, how, how the government's scrutinised. And I'm, I'm always tempted to say it enabled me to see a lot of behind the scenes work, but it's not, that's not actually true in the sense that the committee, the committee's work, the committee's meetings each week, that, that's streamed live on the Parliament website. But I think it is behind the scenes in the sense that people don't see that in the news, uh, not at least very much. And um, so they're perhaps less aware that that goes on. I, I certainly was. Um, but yeah, I suppose the, the point I was making is that it, it did give me a more positive view of our democracy because I saw that there's um, so much more to it than I than I used to be aware of. And there's so many good people that are, are really trying their best and trying to not just improve things, but maintain the good things that we have to maintain and, and to improve the things that need to be improved. There are definitely lots of people working hard to, to do that. It's just the case that... Um, well, one, one of the reasons that I suppose things change at a slower rate than we might might like them to is because things are so complicated. And my internship also gave me a, more of an appreciation of that. It's like if you, if you want to make improvements in education, then you know that's you can't just it's going to have wider implications. It's and and that's why it takes longer, and that's why things are harder to change i guess so yeah but yeah, i think it, i think it's really it, it's it's really useful though that you that you gain that you know that i suppose yeah. that, that that knowledge of, of how that system works and if, if you were to instigate changes based on your research and education which i'm sure you will just the you know the i suppose the uh, that that like element of realism and how you might realistically go about doing that um yeah with, with those channels which is, which is invaluable really you think about yeah. it yeah 
Yeah, that, that's right. And it's um, I think that's a good way of putting it, the element of realism, because it's easy to make for it to sort of sound pessimistic when you say that, well, the prime minister with the greatest will in the world can't just click their, their fingers and um, make the improvement that you think should be made in education. It's like maybe that improvement would be beneficial, but it's it's so it takes time to change things. And it's this is not to say that um, some things don't take longer than what they probably should but it's just the case that um things are complicated and and so i think from a researcher's perspective to make sense of it from that perspective i'd, I'd say that the question is it's a case of trying to make your your research findings as um sort of as practicable if that's the right word as um or, or maybe just as, as practical as as you can so that if you are then to to try and influence people who are in a position to mm. to 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 sort of take those findings on board then they've, they have a practical way of doing it i think it i suppose the point i'm making is that it's important for researchers if they do want their research to make a practical difference it's important for them to make it very clear um what that practical difference should be and how that how their, their their research is has led them to that position, yeah, um, and, yeah. and I, I think most researchers are quite aware of that principle anyway. But I think my internship really gave me a greater appreciation for it because, as we know in this conversation, it's easy to get very philosophical and to to philosophise, but it, it's much harder to say, well, here's the problem. And then here's something that we might actually be able to do about it that's feasible. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a, a a real a real problem within within our world, our our sort of like profession is. You have these you know immensely intelligent people with you know like tremendous work, but mm. unfortunately it, it so rarely makes it down. Uh, you know, to, you know to to, to you know to, to sort of, you know, at the sort of regular level. And yeah, it's a shame is it is is a real shame. I, I definitely think we could do better um into it's it kind of like i've always felt it's our ob our obligation to um you know to, to find a practical a, a positive practical yeah. application for which is what you're doing so um which links in perfectly to the final question is what do you want to do you know obviously with you know we want once you get your findings you know obviously you you hand in your phd as it were what's going to be your you know your your your, your sort of fight you know, your your important step there your your sort of contribution how are you going to use this to make a make a change a realistic change obviously i'm asking to save the yeah. world <laughs> yeah so good question so I've, i think my um research it, it will be about the, the practical implications i'm hoping will be things that lecturers um and i'll hopefully be including myself in that category at some point so things that lecturers can use um to to get their students to be more motivated and um and that I think one of the ways that I'll I'll be suggesting that that would be possible is through trying to influence students' reflexivity. So trying to maybe talk to students more about why on earth have you come to university? What 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 do you think um, are, the, are the reasons for being here? And I think they'll find that some students might not have much to say on that. They might just say, "Well, I'm here to get a better job," or "I'm here because I couldn't think of anything else to do." And I, I think, um, I suppose I did think this beforehand, but your, your research is, um, is a way of testing out your, your hypotheses 
Um, but I, I'd suggest that one way to sort of improve student motivation is to ask students to, to reflect more on, on, on their motivations. So um, the, the point being, I think the more we think about why we're doing something, um, well, potentially, the more we might realise this is a bad idea. But hopefully, from the students' perspective, we might get them to realise that, that there are more reasons to be in education beyond getting a better job, for example. That's not to say that getting a, a better job than you might have done otherwise isn't an oh, important yeah. thing, but it's a case of, I think, encouraging students to think about, well, what's in it for you beyond that? And, and not only what's in it for you, what might be in it for other people if if you engage well with, with your education. And um, so getting them to think maybe more about the broader implications of their they're having pursued education. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that's probably one of the, if, if we're talking about what will be the practical implications of my research, I suppose it would be something like recommending that um, universities or lecturers encourage students to be more reflective on their, on their, on their motivations for being at university. No, I think, I think that's, a, that's a powerful recommendation. And I think, I think in doing that, you would probably make students sort of recognize obviously that there are other potentially more powerful forms of motivation and mm. um, you know obviously i'm so once once you kind of like, like illuminate those types in the room as it were and they can see their peers oh well so and so is far more driven than i am and now i know why yeah that's right you know yeah. they could again reflect on their reflectivity as i say you know and you've got a yeah yeah and that's what makes it a sociological project in many ways it's it has to do with how students experiences have influence the way they think um, and how those experiences continue to influence the way they think whilst they're at university and um, you reminded me there of I remember meeting someone when I was I didn't go to uni till I was 21 I remember meeting someone when I was 20 and she spoke about how passionate she was about education and I'd never really met anyone like that before who who actually wanted to study education wanted to be in education for a reason other than getting a, a better paid job at the end of it um and and that got me then thinking myself well maybe education could be more than just a means to getting a better job and and then obviously well not obviously but then i, I reflected on it more and um and then ended up going to university actually being well at least much more motivated than i was in school and college in in, in my previous times in education I mean, and and there's that personal driver that I was I was referring to before. See that that, that clearly clearly that 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 meeting had a tremendous effect on you. Uh, yes. In, yeah. In terms of you know finding your own drive and mm. yeah passion to uh, do that. Well, it, it, this has been a great a great great conversation, Richard. I just have to thank you very much for your time. Um, your project sounds absolutely amazing, and I and I look forward to uh, obviously the contribution that you make. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, well, thank you very much too, Anton. It's been, uh, been my pleasure to, to be on here and hopefully it's, um, it provides some interesting listening for, for some listeners. And uh, I feel, I always feel like it's good to have someone ask you about your work because it, it does get you articulating you the meaning of it and definitely gets you thinking about it. And I think I'll go away now and they'll give, it will give me a few things to think about. So yeah, thank you very much Brilliant. too. Thank you, Richard. And you've been listening to the End of the World Podcast with Anton Roberts plus guests.
If you'd like to leave a message, please do so after the bleep. Like, comment, subscribe, because knowledge is for everyone.